0: In Christ, before we dive into the book of James, I want to say la- one last thing. And my hope and prayer is this the last thing I ever have to say about a painter or about painting at all? And that is this there have been some questions uh, about the painting that is going on at the end of the education uh, uh, wing over there. And so I want to say, first of all, that I should have said something to you a few weeks ago about this. One of the things that I am continuing to learn. Uh, is that there is a big difference between uh, pastoring and communicating with a church of 50 to 60 people versus 5 to 600. When you're at a a church of 50 to 60, as I'm pretty comfortable with and have done, uh, when you communicate, you don't really have to communicate that much. So if, for instance, you're doing a painting project, well, there have already been about five people who have been complaining for years about the paint. Uh, Then you have about five more people who are on than the committee to say, okay, well, what do we want to do about this? Then you have another five or ten people who are actually doing the painting. You have another five to ten people who are the spouses of the people who are doing the painting. You have five to ten more people who are bringing in the lunch to help out those who are painting, and then you have another five or ten people who are coming in to complain about the painting job that was just done. And at the end of the day, then everybody knows that you were painting, and everybody knows why you were painting. Well, that doesn't happen in a church of five to 600 nearly as easily. So let me explain just kind of briefly why it is that we are doing that. Because some have a concern why are we redoing something we just did? So let me just quickly try to explain that. Two years ago, we did a big project. The big project was to. Uh, it had two, two major parts to it. Um, it was to f- try to freshen up our children's wing, uh, which meant bring in a children's welcome center that's over there in the corner. There wasn't a great place for our children and parents to kind of gather, and so we wanted to do that, and that was where Noah's Ark office was, and we wanted to move Noah's Ark office closer to the doors because that helped with security, something that we've invested pretty heavily in over the last couple of years, and so uh, it was a pretty big project. We did a lot of painting. We did flooring. We did all those things, but as happens, if you've done any renovations, we ran in into some things that meant that the budget got pushed, right? We ran into some structural issues. We had to put firewalls around the offices that we had not expected to have to do. And before you know it, we were about out of money in that particular part of the project. And we had to decide, what are we going to do? Are we going to finish the painting all the way down in the hallway, or are we going to stop? And I'm not... I'm not keen, actually, on going and asking people to just give money for a specific project. Sometimes people like to do that. I don't like to do that. I prefer to talk about generosity as a whole. uh, And as we give, then we kind of give into the budget. And so we decided at that point two years ago, rather than finishing it all out, the rest of that part, down the hallway, which was multicolored, we had to do something because there were still animals painted on there, which were previous, uh, was part of the previous regime, if you will, of painting and the walls. And so we did that in-house. We just had somebody come in in-house. was already a staff, and they just kind of finished that up. Um, so that then, waiting for the time two years later, when we had the money to finish that painting as well as going up and painting and doing all the different flooring. And so what we were trying to do is to be good stewards and not push the budget in 2016. Now two years later when we have those funds, now we can professionally have someone come in, finish out the original kind of plan and hope, and then move forward. Um, So that's kind of the reason why a few weeks ago I should have said something to you. I didn't. Uh, If you have any questions about this subject... Ask Scott, all right? Um, so, um, but, but, but please do so. No, seriously, you can, ask, you can ask me, but you can ask Scott or you can ask Tim King, our facilities, and we are always, please know, we are always more than happy to answer any questions or concerns that you have. Let, let's, uh, but not right now, Brent Davis, okay. Let's be about the word of the Lord right now. We are continuing in our look at James. I hope that this has been a good um, study for you so far. We have another three weeks, I think, of looking at this book. It is, as we've said before, it is a challenging book, but it is one that I think has full of meaning, especially for for who we are as a people. And this morning, we're going to look at James 3, verses 1 through 18. And so I invite you to hear these words. James says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for all of us make many mistakes. And anyone who makes no mistakes in speaking is perfect, able to keep the whole body in check with the bridle. If we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we guide their whole bodies. Or look at ships, though they are so large that it takes strong winds to drive them, yet they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great exploits. How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. The tongue is placed among our members as a world of iniquity. It stains the whole body, sets on fire the cycle of nature, and is itself set on fire by hell. For every species of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by the human species, but no one can tame the tongue, a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers and sisters, this ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and brackish water? Can a fig tree, my brothers and sisters, yield olives or a grapevine figs? No more can salt water yield fresh. Who is wise and understanding among you? Show by your good life that your works are done with gentleness born of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be boastful and false to the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, devilish. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there will also be disorder and wickedness of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace. For those who make peace. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God and let's pray. God, we come to you this morning seeking your face. Lord, these are hard words this morning. and So we pray for your grace upon us. Give us the courage to confront the things we do and the things that we say. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen and amen. Not many of you should want to become teachers, James says. It's always very interesting how when you read something at the beginning of a week to prepare for a sermon, how much different it feels when you begin to read it at the end of a particular week. I certainly, I have to say that I have been uh, uh, less desirable of being a teacher or leader at the end of the week than I was at the beginning of the week. And then, of course, when James begins to talk to us about the tongue and about being careful with what we say, I mean, we have really poured over this week trying to figure out how do we say things, uh, truthfully, that, that won't be misconstrued or mischaracterized. And the, Because why? Because we know the power of our words. And James is fully aware of the power of words. Throughout this pretty short letter, he has already numerous things times begun to discuss the power and the danger of the tongue right We, we remember that he said a while back that we need to be slow to slow to speak and quick to to listen that's exactly right we James uh, told us early on that we should not in any way kind of verbally begin to blame God for our own uh, temptations and the ways that we have fallen prey to our own desires, that, that we should be careful not, not to be flattering to the wealthy, that we need to make sure that we're not sitting there and saying, oh, we're, we're so sorry that you are poor, and we pray for God's warmth and peace, and yet not actually ever do anything. In fact, even more generally, that we have to be careful about what we say and make sure that we are are actually going about deeds that are following up what it is that we are saying. And and then even for the next couple of chapters in four and five, James will bring up the power of the tongue again and again. If, as we've been talking about, the desire of James is to help us to go to bed looking more like Jesus than when we woke up, And if James' desire is that when the sun sets, our community looks more like the kingdom of God than when the sun rose, then we would be wise to perhaps begin all of that process by watching what it is that we say. And if James' simple preponderance of the amount of times that he talks about the tongue is not enough for us to understand just how important this is to James, then this week he begins to give us analogy after analogy after analogy, one metaphor after another, in order to try to help us to really understand just how powerful the tongue is. He begins with the image of the bridle and the bit of a horse, and he talks about the fact that, you know, this one small bit that it can control the whole massive Horse, And someone has said, or even James begins to say, how amazing it is that we can tame all of these wild animals and yet we seem to have an inability to tame this small muscle in our mouth. And how fascinating that is, how disturbing it is. And then, then James, he goes on and he, he brings up something kind of similar. He talks about the rudder of a ship and how fascinating it is that this small rudder can control this kind of massive boat that all it takes is this one little shift of the rudder and all of a sudden everything begins to change the whole direction of this larger ship begins to change and this is what he goes on to say as he tries to explain that a little bit he talks about the fact of how often we we brag about our exploits or another way to say it is how often does our tongue try to make us look bigger and better than what we actually are? How often does our tongue try to convey a sense to others that we are more confident, that we are more affluent, uh, that uh, uh, um, that we are more accomplished, and that we aren't that fearful? We don't have doubts. Oh, no, we have everything figured out. How often do we try to convey this image that is so much larger than what we know we actually are? Or to put it in more modern terms, maybe, that not only the words we speak, of course, but the things that we type or the photos that we post. How often are those things trying to convey something that is actually much larger and much different than is the reality? Our tongue has a remarkable way of doing that. And, and, and then James says, well, what about this next metaphor? What about, what about the way that it is much like a fire, much like a forest set And I I love the way he just kind of begins to kind of, he goes on and he says that the tongue is a fire that can set everything else on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. So how do you feel, James, about the tongue? Right? There's really no question. And I tell you, that image for me at least is, is incredibly powerful Because how often have you had a word come out of your mouth and you have wanted to catch that word, but as soon as it goes outside of your lips, it is gone and it can rage like a fire? Right, Much like as we get into the forest fire season here out west, much like you hear about perhaps just one match or a cigarette butt or, or embers that from a campfire that they thought had put out, how one little spark all of a sudden, as soon as it hits a piece of dry wood, it takes off and there is no controlling it. How many of us have experienced that? Sometimes it's a word that you wish you wouldn't have said. Sometimes it's even a word that you... That you understood as being saying it in one way but it was mischaracterized or misunderstood and all of a sudden it just begins to run rampant. I can remember at the first church that I served I was having a a conversation with someone I thought we were kind of joking back and forth about a decision that was made and I said well we did it because that's what I wanted to do and and so that's why we did it. (laughs) The other person wasn't laughing and before you know it It had taken off. There were emails talking about what I had said, and people were talking about this, and there was nothing that I could do to kind of snuff out the fire. Once it was gone, it began to kind of rage uncontrollably. It is incredibly humbling in the sense of just being out of control, but James understands that this is exactly what our words can do. This is what can happen. And then James goes on to give us yet more imagery, right? He talks about the fact that the, the tongue, that well, it's a bit like a, an opening in a spring where you have both fresh water and brackish water that is flowing back and forth. That's no good for anyone, he says. Or it's like a, it, it's like a fig tree and, and olives, and, 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 and what if a fig tree um, had olives, uh, and produced olives, and vice versa? That's not the way it's supposed to be, he says. This is, this is not good. This is not normal. And... What James is trying to get here in this particular image is he's, he's saying that you can't, as a follower of Jesus, praise God one moment and then curse God's creation the next. You, you can't praise God one moment and then curse those who have been made in the image of God. Which is, who's been made in the image of God? Everyone. Everyone. Let me say it again. You cannot curse, you cannot bless God, praise God, and the next moment be cursing God's creation, those who have been made in the image of God, which means everyone. It means the family member that hurt you, it means the ex family member who really hurts you, it means the church member. Who did you wrong in some way. Or the ex-church member who did you wrong. It means the politician. From Donald Trump to Hillary Clinton. And everyone in between. It means the convict. It means the pastor. I'll look at everyone. It means the pastor. It means the parishioner. It means everyone. That we are never given license. Never given license to curse those who were made in the image of God. Now, you may be saying, well, what does that mean? I can't say anything bad about, you know, if somebody says something bad, can't we confront this? Aren't we told to stand up for justice? Absolutely. Without question, we should be willing to confront bad actions, bad words, those things that are ill-spoken, those things that are unjust. But what we have to always be aware of is that it is a fine line, very fine indeed, Between cursing what someone has said or done versus cursing who they are. And one of the things that I have discovered, it seems to me, is that whenever you begin to demonize someone, whenever you begin to make a demon out of someone, that in your eyes they no longer reflect the image of God. But that, of course, again, is not easily done. It is easy for us to demonize. In fact, it's funny because as I was thinking about this later in the week, and I, I what I get really worked up about are not what things that people in the world do. It's things that people in the church do, right? Followers of Jesus. That's what really angers me. And so I was thinking about how angry I was about these people who go out and they demonize. These followers of Jesus who, who demonize others. And I was getting really worked up about it until I realized that what I was doing was I was demonizing the people who I was upset with because they were demonizing other people. Just like that. So how do you measure? How do you measure whether or not you are really just speaking out against what someone has said or done versus whether or not you are cursing them? I, there's probably lots of ways. I will tell you one of the ways that I know within my own heart is this, that when I have to speak out against what someone has said or done, does it bring me some sense of pain That I have to do so? Does it make me mourn that I have to say something against someone who was made in the image of God? What I have discovered with others, and if I'm so honest with myself, is that if I'm getting a certain amount of joy, saying something against someone else or typing something against someone else, then it probably means that I am no longer speaking against what they have said or done, and I have begun to curse them. In fact, my wife just listened to this podcast that talked about the fact that when you begin, talked about one person who talked about, as, as he began to shame this ex-girlfriend of his, the amount of joy, I mean, almost this elation of being able to do that was incredible. And if you get excited about, having to, about speaking against someone... Then you may want to check your own heart and to make sure that what you are doing is not actually cursing that person. Because I don't care who he or she is, and I don't care what he or she has done, they are still made in the image of God. Let's move on because it's too awkward. The only way that we can do this, it seems, is for us to have a different kind of wisdom. This, I think, is exactly what James understands, which is why he moves from the tongue to talking about the difference between heavenly wisdom and earthly wisdom. Earthly wisdom, it seems, is wisdom that does not help to build or cultivate community or wholeness. It is that which usually sets one person against another. This is why envy and selfish ambition uh, are, are included in that. I like what Socrates said about envy. It, um, what he says is that envy is basically the sense of it gnaws at your soul for the simple reason. For the simple reason that you, somebody else has something that you don't want. And that's exactly what envy does. It begins to gnaw at our souls. It pits one against another. But wisdom that is from above, of course, is very different. Wisdom that is from above, oftentimes then it helps to bring together community. It helps to bring together wholeness. I, 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 I like what James says where it is willing to yield. Willing to yield, which basically means it is willing to say, well, maybe I was wrong. It's willing to listen to others and to be shaped by others. This week I had lunch with somebody um, who told me that his boss with some regularity, when there are big decisions to be made, he will say this, I reserve the right to become smarter. I reserve the right to become smarter. Which means, I reserve the right at some point to look back and say, Well, that was not the right decision. Ah, that we made, we messed that up. Right? I, I love actually today in the Indy Star, if you already saw, I loved how, um, um, what's the guy? Mitch. Daniels, thank you, Mitch Daniels, obviously I didn't write this down, where he said, I've never been afraid to say oops right? And this is one of those things, right? The willingness, right? To be able to say, the willingness to yield. Heavenly wisdom says, hey, you may not have this all figured out. But not only does it do that, it also then cultivates a different set of, a sense of community. If you've had a leader who always has to be right, you know that that is not a great sense. That's not a great experience, right? It doesn't build community. But when you are willing to say, oops, when you are willing to say, hey, I reserve the right to become smarter, you know, at some point, when you reserve the right to do that, all of all of a sudden then people feel like they have something to offer it begins to shift everything it begins to build a sense of community and a sense of wholeness it it helps you to not then perhaps begin to speak ill of others to not begin to curse those who have been made in the image of God but again as N.T. Wright says so well none of these things come without personal cost It is incredibly difficult to do all of these things, to tame the tongue, to not curse others, to not have selfish ambition or envy, to be a people who are willing to change. The particularly troubling part, if I could take just a moment for personal privilege, is the way in which James begins all of this, which is calling out first and foremost teachers, in some sense, James thinks that this begins with teachers, and, and that clearly, as James begins to see, that it begins with them setting an example for others. But I also think James probably says that because he knows that teachers have a certain proclivity, perhaps, towards some of these things. I mean, teachers, people, who, people like me, maybe, who get up front, we say a lot of words, I see it in some of your eyes as you begin to roll them back. Jeez, how many more words, right? We say a lot of words, and the simple odds are this. The more words you say, the more likely it is that you are going to say something that you should not have said. And so James says you have to be careful. You have to be wary of what you say. One of my favorite psalms is the 134th psalm. That says that you should put a guard or a sentry in front of your mouth, right there. I love that image. And there will be times, I will be honest, when my guard has fallen asleep. I blame the sentry for having done something, me saying something I shouldn't have said, right? I mean, this is the reality, is that we so often do these things. And pastors and preachers, we love to embellish stories. We love to kind of make things sound even better than they are. We love to kind of make our church sound bigger and better than what it actually is. There's always this sense of, of wanting to say more and make us look even bigger than what is actually the truth. And, and teachers Teachers are certainly prone towards cursing those which God has created. I mean, I know that everyone is prone to that, but I'll say as a pastor at times, there may be just a wee bit more of a proclivity even because of the fact that so often we are asked to respond to other people who may not be saying things in a gentle and loving way to us in a way that seems pastoral. And that can be difficult. I know that you all think that pastors after having been yelled at or accused of something that we that comes very naturally for us just to say brother sister why don't we take a moment and see where the spirit is no we want to rip your head off <laughs> why we want to respond in the exact same way at least I do And so it is a challenge then to not do that, right? As we all should not do that, but it is a challenge, right? And what can happen, I've seen this, is if pastors don't have other, if teachers don't have other outlets, what you begin to do is you begin to quietly curse them. And one of the things that I have noticed in myself and in others, this is not just relegated to teachers, is what happens when as you begin to curse and no longer see the image of God in others, when you start looking in the mirror you will slowly begin to find it more difficult to see the image of God even in yourself. When you continually curse others and do not see that they are made in the image of God, it will begin to shape how you even understand yourself. It is corrosive to your soul to do that. And yes, of course, pastors and teachers, we struggle with being willing to yield. We struggle, make no mistake about it, with saying that we are wrong, that we made a mistake, that we should have done something differently. We, we struggle with that. There are times, of course, when, when, when you stand up here and if people expect you should have all of the answers, right? You should know these things. And I don't like to disappoint people. But the reality, of course, is is that, of course, we don't have everything figured out, right? Of course, we are on this journey alongside of you. And that's why so often I love to share with you my own weaknesses, my struggles. I, I realize, again, as I've said before, that there are times when people would prefer me to just tell the stories of, of, of perhaps, you know, when I stood out and did something great for Jesus and that, you know, I've never kind of struggled. I've never yelled at, you know... Stupid car drivers that I've never done any of those things, you know, that I just go along singing along with K-Love and just saying, Hey, I don't care if you're going 15 miles under the speed limit. That makes me happy. More time to pray. But I struggle with that. And I do that as a way of trying to, in many ways, humble myself as a way of making it easier for you not to envy me, right? You're even happier. Well, thank God we're not him. He's got real issues. But I want you to know that I echo, if there is any hope, I think, for whether you are a teacher or a student, whether you are an accountant or whether you are a gardener or whether you are a homemaker or whether you are a convict or whether you are a policeman, no matter what it is, the way that we are able to engage in the conversation that James gives to us is by beginning with being honest as the message says, as it translates, James, that none of us are perfectly qualified. All of us, as the Greek says more literally, all of us stumble. And when we acknowledge that, and we then know that we are dependent upon the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, only then, it seems to me, can we begin to actually tackle these incredibly difficult things of controlling the tongue, of not cursing others even when we long to, and of being a people who aren't about envy and comparing ourselves to one another, but instead of people who know that we are on this journey together. We are shaped, sisters and brothers in Christ, by this table, by its incredible reminder, its tangible reminder that Jesus Christ was broken for us so that we can acknowledge in all fullness, our own mistakes, our own brokenness, that then the Spirit of God might begin to work through us and we might be able to reflect more and more who Jesus is and that this kingdom will be coming closer and closer to coming on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Sisters and brothers and